Okay, good evening everyone. Today's talk is in response to a question about living one's life. So the question was, had its own specifics, but the, the important point of it was about asking how to live one's life. Which is a difficult question to answer on the face of it because it often uh, uh, involves some assumptions about about what's important and just assumptions about life in general. When we talk about how to live our lives, it's often in context. It's in the context of what we see as essential or important. It's in the context of how we understand reality. It's caught up in what we're told about life, about the world. So it involves concepts like family, like society, like economy, even the concept of life itself, which is really just a concept, like a life from birth to death. Because the birth of a being, of a human being, it's a concept. It's in our minds, something that we um, conceive of based on observations. It's quite different experientially from other experiences, and so we give it a name and we see it as a thing, as an entity. And we do the same with death. Well, death is some event that is quite different from other events. But it's um, mo mostly external, right? You look at someone else, you, 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 you spend time with them, and you experience them in a specific way, but when they die, well, you're experiencing them quite a different way, and it appears that they have ceased to exist, or an important part of them, the, the mental part and the physical life has ceased to exist, and so this gives rise to all sorts of ideas. But important for this question is the idea of life. So when we talk about life, we have to understand uh, that it's in context. It's in the context of our understanding of things. And so I can't tell you how to live your life in that context. Um, because it's not essential. It's not something that has an answer. The questions that we ask about life, in other words, are not fundamentally real. Right? Should I go to university? Should I get a job? Should I get this job or that job? We ask questions that are based on concepts, and so the answers are elusive, 
are, are complicated and are, are unanswerable in, in an, ultimate, an ultimate level. And so we, we develop theories and philosophies and, and ideas based around these, right? The, the work ethic idea, the family fim, uh, filial piety um, idea. Our religions play into this, our cultures play into this, even our partialities play into this. I want to be a lawyer, right? How many concepts are caught up in that? And how, how subjective is that? I want to become a lawyer, but does that mean be becoming a lawyer is the right thing? For some people that's enough, for many people nowadays. I want to bang on a drum all day. <laughs> For some people that's enough. And so we have to, this is a, a puzzle for us to solve, and it's a puzzle that is deeply a part of Buddhist theory and, and, and practice. Right? Our coming here to meditate, someone's taking the time to come here and meditate, is is caught up in this idea is it's caught up in these ideas these these dilemmas about what's right and what's wrong and what's essential and what's unessential <clears throat> because we start to see that there are some things that are are harmful some things that are useless and then we see some things that are essential and some things that are are, are, are useful are, are beneficial so the first the first thing we have to do is to step outside of this idea of, of, of a life right? of, of who we are of our culture and, and everything um, because if we talk about we talk about should right what I should do we're, we're all we're always in some sense uh, talking about the difference between suffering and happiness okay? we should do things that lead to happiness or peace or freedom from suffering however you want to put it, these are generally synonymous talking about the same sort of thing. And we should conversely do things that lead away from suffering. It's almost a tautology to say that, because the way we define suffering and the way we understand and the truth of what is suffering, it really is a part of the idea of should and shouldn't. I think that's that's an important truth that we have to we have to accept in the beginning, right? Doing something, saying I should do something, even though it makes me unhappy, and it makes no one else happy, right? It brings good things to no one. It is is a ridiculous idea. Um, or and, and conversely, saying I shouldn't do something even though it hurts no one and it brings happiness to someone 
probably myself, is, um, is likewise ludicrous. I think people who take on religious practice come to see this. They come to see beyond the shoulds and the shouldn'ts of culture and society and, and, and realize some of the, the unessential um, ideas that we cultivate or systems that we get caught up in. Right? We're told falsely that things like money will make us happy or things like money have a goodness to them. We're told falsely that um, society and culture and, and the betterment of the human race. Um, I, I mean, we're, we're taught, we're set on paths with the idea that something is right. And we go down that path and it, it conflicts on this basic level because we see this is not bringing happiness, this is bringing suffering. So, so it turns out to be, I think, the fundamental quality that that in the in the beginning is not clear, oftentimes, right? Why would something be a should? Why would something be a shouldn't? Uh, the first principle we have to see is is this has to be based on some conception of happiness versus suffering. And so, if we can get that far and understand that, then we can start to analyze. And uh, again, this is what leads people to practice things like meditation, is because they see, hmm, working on my life for money uh, doesn't bring happiness. The happiness that it might bring is, is uh, insufficient. Um, trying to please my parents, for example, may at times be a useful thing to do, may lead to happiness, but it may also, it in and of itself is not enough. If it leads my parents to worry about me or to, to fixate on my life, and if it leads me to um, go into something or get involved in something that is not beneficial for anyone, then how can I say that's a good thing? Um, we start to see that our immediate pleasures, our striving for pleasure, like addictions to entertainment or um, se sensual gratification, are, 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 are also not a cause for happiness. We, we, people see this, they start to see how I'm not happier. I've been doing this for so long and I actually feel more stressed. Uh, my mind is less uh, composed, less at peace. Some people see that they're, they're um, their dependencies on things dependencies on people or, or uh, society. When, when you lose a loved one, for example, it's a cause for people to come to religion. Be, and part of it is this realization that, oh, that, that, <laughs> that wasn't actually the solution. And I think an important part of understanding how 
to live one's life involves seeing beyond this life. Or seeing beyond in general, let's say. Like a, a drug addict has to see beyond the ephemeral pleasure of engaging in their addiction. Right? I can take heroin, a lot of happiness there. Uh, but but uh, it isn't a solution. Because it doesn't actually lead to a good, a, a good result. It, it's it's short-sighted. Right? So it's this idea of happiness leading to suffering. And so we start to see how if you really want a solution, it has to be somehow lasting. A person who uh, goes, to, who follows the narrative of society, goes to school, gets a good job, maybe a great job, makes a lot of money, and then gets sick. Steve Jobs, let's say, um, gets cancer, and it's just at the top of the world, and then gets cancer, and um, may suddenly realize that their focus was perhaps short-sighted. They start to realize that things like money and, and pleasure and, and, and even the advancement of society, a politician, might um, work very hard to bring democracy and, and, and civil rights and, 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 and no, let's not civil rights, uh, putting aside ethics, like um, building building infrastructure, making people's lives better and so on. And only realize that it's not enough. Like if you build hospitals, let's say, is a good example, or if you're a doctor and you think, I'll help people and we'll make people healthier. And you, you, you realize, um, actually, where is this all leading? And and you 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 have fundamental questions unanswered uh, about the future, about the way to find peace and happiness, even if you're working on a great thing like the betterment of the human race. Because when does it end? Where does it lead? We know where the human race is going, it's eventually going to extinction, I would think, barring any sort of miracle. The earth is going to be destroyed eventually. So it, we have to somehow get beyond this and get outside of this. And so the concept of rebirth becomes ultimately important from a cosmological point of view if we're going to address this. I mean, as a meditator, of course, you don't, you don't need to think about things like rebirth, not exactly, not necessarily. But, but to carry this argument forward, we have to see that it's got to be much more and bigger and, and more profound, not necessarily longer as in leading to the next life or involved with, with rebirth but beyond just what's going to uh, lead to some place in this life. I guess the point is it has to be timeless is probably the right word, or it has to be eternal. 
It has to be outside of time. It has to be here and now, I suppose. Uh, and so in Buddhism, we take these ideas and you, you'll you see a lot of this theme going through the Buddhist teaching about what are the things that lead to happiness, what are the things that lead to suffering, and, and finding ways to equip ourselves and to direct ourselves and to lead ourselves to what is um, what is truly valuable probably the best way to say it, right? To realize that certain things, that many things, most things, are, are, are not very valuable, are, are, are worthless in the end, in an ultimate sense. Not, not, not worthless, but unessential is the word that the Buddha used. And so what I wanted to talk about today, and I'm been taking some time getting to it, is what is essential. Uh, the Buddha talked about five things as being essential, and they're familiar. There's nothing new here if you're, if you're, they're core, they're core Buddhist. Um, but I, I think, so I think the framing of it is the important part. If you ask this question, how should I live my life? Well, you have to first pull yourself out of all of your ideas about what that entails, right? What are the factors that you plug in to find an answer to that question, how should I live your life? The answer should be only those things that are essential. You shouldn't factor in things that are, um, are unessential, like money or fame or even things like culture or religion. You should factor in happiness and suffering really right right what is the what are the ultimate in an ultimate sense what are we talking about when we say should and they come down to uh, quite simple principles and the idea then is that if you apply these principles the rest is all details so you can talk about duties to family and duties to your society and your place in life and just duties as an interaction um, like driving on the right side of the street or paying your taxes or so on mowing your lawn you can talk about those things but they're unessential and you can see the difference if you live your life according to what is essential there's nothing else that you need to worry about right? and so all these questions can then be answered so what is it that's essential? Well, the Buddha said there are five things. And again, they're very, should be very familiar to Buddhists. The first one, sila. Sila means um, behavior or one's composure, I suppose. And it refers mainly to ethical acts. The second one, samadhi. Samadhi means focus or concentration. The third is panya, wisdom. The fourth is vimutti, freedom. 
And the fifth is Vimuti Jnana Dasana, which means knowledge and vision of freedom. Quite simple, no? If you want to talk about a road map or a set of principles to live by, um, I think a road map might be a good way of, of describing it. Then here you have one, potentially. So why are these things essential? I think the first one really captures them all quite well because it talks about ethics. Sila is really much more than we often give it credit for. Sila is in many ways the beginning and the end of everything, of, of the whole, uh, this whole path to find freedom from suffering and, and happiness and peace. Because the word ethics, from a Buddhist perspective, involves an inherent idea of happiness and suffering. Something is only ethical if it brings happiness, peace, freedom from suffering. There's no, there's no other real reason why something would be considered ethical. Something is considered unethical for the only reason that it leads to suffering. That's it. No other reason. If something never ever or doesn't directly um, lead to suffering, then it can't be considered unethical. If it doesn't involve the um, cultivation of suffering, then it's not unethical. And so, okay, I'm not going to go too deeply into that, but um, because there are other philosoph there's other ramifications there. If you talk about, well, what if something leads to suffering for someone else? What if I'm walking down the street and I step on an, an ant without noticing that the ant is there? Then you could say, well, I led, to, I caused suffering for that ant. Right? So I don't, I don't know how much detail I want to go into defending what I just said, but if we, if we basically talk about sila, we often talk about in terms of actions, right? So we say killing is unethical. Why? Because, well, it leads to suffering. Not just for the being that you're killing, and really actually not essentially for the being that you're killing, because someone can be killed without suffering from it if their mind is completely pure they won't suffer from it. There will be no agitation in their mind, right? So theoretically and, and, and ultimately, one can be free from suffering, being a victim of unethical acts. So when we talk about, about suffering from unethical acts, we're actually talking about the suffering of the perpetrator. A person who kills suffers. And so stepping on an ant without noticing it's there, well, it's, a, it's really bad for the ant. But the ant's suffering comes from some other process, the fact that they themselves are attached to their body of an ant and their life and attached to the feelings and so on. Um, but no suffering comes to the person who stepped on the ant. And so it's not considered for that reason unethical. For that reason, it's not considered unethical. If, on the other hand, you see an ant and you intentionally step on it, 
you're cultivating cruelty. I mean, what it says about you is something not very nice. It says that you're a murderer. It says that you don't care about the happiness and peace and suffering of others. And so it creates this... I mean, it, it, it involves a corruption of mind, a state of mind that is cruel, that is unhealthy. And, and unhealthy because through meditation, through my, just being mindful, through observation, you can see that it uh, causes you stress and suffering. It, it corrupts your mind. It reduces your composure. You know, I mean, gross examples we can see is when you kill a human being, you're filled with remorse and fear and, and, and uh, all sorts of horrible mind states. I, 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 many years ago I read this, this book, um, Crime and Punishment, by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And uh, it does a very good job of describing uh, the consequences of murder to yourself. What happens? How you how you punish yourself? So ethics ethics really is a way of describing or a way of pinpointing what it is that leads to happiness and suffering. And so. If a person could be completely ethical, then they would never suffer. So the only problem with that, why that isn't enough, is because ethics are, are difficult, are challenging, are, are impossible for, for most of us to keep perfectly. Right? Because you, ultimately, if you follow this, it, it, even if you sit alone in your room and you think an angry thought, or a lustful thought, or a conceited thought. That's unethical, right? It's unethical because it's going to lead you to build un unethical habits. And so sitting in your room, you might not kill or steal or lie or cheat, but you're building it. And you can say, I'm perfect in ethics, I've done nothing wrong, but you will always have that potential. And if you sit in your room and you build this, these nasty thoughts, you can go crazy and go out and, and become a psychopath and kill people. Maybe not anytime soon, but the potential is always there. So we say, maybe in, in another life, certainly. It may, it may be a long time away. Some people practice meditation where they suppress their unwholesome thoughts and ideas. And so in this life, they're, they're quite pure. But they've only suppressed them. And if any time they were to stop meditating, they could come back any time. Right, this story in, in the, the Jatakas, I think it was, about this, um, this ascetic. And uh, he was very, very pure and, and accomplished in meditation, in the, in the jhanas, in, in, in the attainment of trance and transcendental meditation. Uh, but, but then he became the teacher, he became caught up in being a teacher for this king and, and the king had a beautiful wife and long story short he saw the beautiful wife naked once just by accident and completely lost his composure and was, was totally lost all of his his, his trance, all of his magical powers, all of his um, mental quality, mental faculties and he just lay on his bed and, and, and uh, got really depressed. 
and the story goes on. Eventually, he gave them back. He realized what an idiot he was being. He, the king, the king, and the king decides. The queen actually tells the king to a, a way out of this, and says, and the king says, "Okay, I, I give you my queen. You can have her as your wife." And the queen teaches him a lesson. It's quite a good story. Um, but the point, the point being. Ethics, on the level that we're talking about, or on any level really, are are uh, shaky. So we we take them as a foundation. Without them, without trying to be ethical here and now, you can't develop higher qualities. You can't you can't go deeper. But in order to make them lasting and come to the goal, which is you know, uh, some eternal ethics, you might say, or being uh, completely free from the potential for being unethical. You need to go further. And so the next one is samadhi. So samadhi depends on ethics. You have to be a good person, or you have to be engaged. You have to be engaged in wholesome behavior and and not engaged in unwholesome behavior in order to cultivate a focused mind, in order to see clearly, we might say. Because one thing we miss about concentration, when we translate samadhi as concentration, it has this quality of being in a trance. And being in a trance is a is samadhi, certainly. It's a very strong sort of samadhi, but it misses the idea of of what is really important about samadhi, and that is that it brings things into focus. And that helps us understand why samadhi is essential. It's essential not just for preventing the arising of unwholesome qualities of mind, suppressing them really, but also for seeing them clearly and helping to see the, the relationship between certain qualities and suffering and to see things more clearly so that we um, so that we don't give rise to un, uh, useless unskillful qualities of mind about them but both of these are, are important qualities of, some, of samadhi so samadhi is the practice of meditation or it's it's the aspect of meditation that, that comes from the ethical behavior of walking and sitting, for example. Like the most ethical behavior, or one of the most pure ethical behaviors, is to do the walking and sitting. When you're walking back and forth, you're not killing anyone, you're not stealing. You're phys physically, physically you're very ethical. Verbally, completely ethical because you're not talking. When you sit, you even close your eyes, so there's... You're, you're, you're preparing yourself quite well. Physically and verbally you've got it covered. And so this, the only thing left is mentally. So men, the samadhi is the aspect of, of uh, practice that is mental, that we, when we actually do the practice. Right? Because walking back and forth isn't meditation. Sitting very still also isn't meditation. It's what's going on in your mind at that time. And so when your mind is with the foot stepping right, when your mind is with the stomach rising, falling, 
you're creating not just concentration but focus and 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 clarity right? things are in focus because when things are out of focus when you're not clear about your experiences well, this is what leads you to do unethical things to make the wrong decision it's what allows for bad behavior to continue right the theory that you can only get angry if you're ignorant, if you're deluded, if you're in darkness. If you really, really were clearly aware of things as they were happening, happening, it would be literally impossible to ever get angry, greedy, conceited, any of that. They all involve misunderstanding. It's an important concept. So when we see, so so this idea of mindfulness should become clear as to why it's so essential and so central. When you say to yourself, rising, you're cultivating and you're evoking, as I've said many times, you're evoking these uh, qualities of clarity and, and pure awareness uh, that, that prevent things that, uh, qualities of mind that would lead to suffering. And so that's samadhi. The third one is panya. So I might say something about, well, why isn't samadhi enough? Well, for similar reason as, as ethics, because it's not sustainable. You can practice walking and sitting and, and oh, see that, that you're not giving rise to greed or anger or delusion or anything that, that might cause you to do or say bad things. But as soon as you stop meditation, meditating, if you stop for a while, oh, it all comes back. It leads some people to feel discouraged. And without a, th pro a, a proper theoretical background, they might get discouraged and think, well, then it's all useless. If you, This is like Sisyphus. He pushes this boulder up the hill and, oh, I got to the top, and then it falls back down to the bottom, and you have to start all over again. So there's more. The third one is Panya. And Panya, on an ultimate level, has this power that we need, this staying power. And it's not Because it's not staying power, it's a switch. It's that switch, really, that we're looking for. Right? When you have a, a problem, in this case, when you have mental problems, we're looking for a switch. We're looking for a pill, for something that will... Uh, not just stop it from coming for a while, but change it, fix it, right? My, uh, wisdom is a fix. It's different from ethics, it's different from concentration or, or focus. Wisdom is what you start to see, and so in the beginning it's not a fix, it's, it's, a, it's a change, but it's one that can be reverted, can be changed back. It's a change in the way you look at things when you start to see that greed, anger, delusion, conceit, arrogance, and so on. When you start to see that these things are unbeneficial, you show yourself. You see them again and again until you get tired of them. When you see the things that uh, you cling to as stable, satisfying, controllable, when you start to see that they're not really stable, they're not satisfying, they're not controllable, and you start to let go of them, this changes something in you. It's very powerful. But, but, but 
to that extent, it's not yet the sweat, the fix. It's possible that all the wisdom you've gained throughout the course, the first part of the course, or throughout the course, it's possible for it all to be wiped away. But eventually, right? I mean, I guess then we can say, and so, even that on that uh, level, wisdom is not enough. Unless it leads to the fourth one. And the fourth one is freedom. That's the fix. The definition of freedom then would be that which is free, <coughs> free from suffering. The, the, that which is a fix, that which is stable, is uh, irrevocable or irreversible. And so this, this fourth one is a claim that we make in Buddhism. When we talk about Nibbana, Nirvana, we're not talking about heaven, we're not talking about a place or, or a realm or something. When we talk about Nirvana, Nibbana, we're talking about this fix, this switch, this thing that is categorically different in the sense that it, it doesn't revert. Anything else, any other definition or, or thing or theory that someone might have, if it is not that, if it is not irrevocable, irreversible, then it is not nirvana. That's why that word is so central and when you hear about Buddhism you hear about nirvana. What that word means and why we talk about that word is this, this thing that flicks the switch, that, 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 that breaks the chain. The Buddha said, like, cuts the tree, cuts a tree off at its stump. Um, a palm tree. If you know anything about a palm tree, it's not like other trees where you can cut it and it will grow back. If you cut the tree and the, the top is gone, the stump will never grow back. Like that. And so I won't go into too much detail about why this happens or how this happens because it would all be just my claims and, and, and all I can say is come and see. I mean, I can give you lots of theory about why it happens, but basically just to show the connection is that through seeing, uh, it's like the Zeno effect. This <laughs> is maybe very technical, but how this, this sort of, uh, this is a, um, like a sonic boom, right? the feedback loop, maybe, how feedback is created. You see so clearly, I mean so often, so systematically, right, day after day, moment after moment, in your meditation, impermanent suffering, non-self, I mean seeing that the things that we cling to are not worth clinging to. In the beginning that's not really clear, but that starts to get more clear, this is not worth clinging to that you get this sense, and it's not an intellectual thing, but it's just a feeling of things, things, these things that you're experiencing not being worth clinging to more and more clearly until this resonates with you and it, it just it comes from within, from your own experience and finally it, it, it builds and builds and builds until there's what we might call an epiphany the satori that they talk about in, Jap in, in Zen Buddhism and that moment is like falling. It's not that it feels like, oh, you suddenly feel like you're falling, but it, it, it's falling in the sense that you're being suspended or being held in samsara. 
um, in this world through clinging. And, and, and when you completely stop, when you completely lose the idea or the desire or the, the delusion that, that clinging is going to lead you somewhere, that the clinging to something will lead you to happiness. You have this epiphany, that's all it takes, and you drop. I think I lost, I don't know what happened there, hopefully we're still alive. Uh, and so this is vimutti, freedom. You, you, you experience what it means to, to not cling, to not attach, to not depend upon samsara or, or the world. And so you think, well, but surely then that's enough. Surely this is what Buddhism says is enough, this freedom. But no, the fifth one, the fifth one's quite curious because it's just knowledge and knowing and seeing that you're free. That one is really the ultimate, um, essential or important part because that's life of freedom. That's, that's the, the state of being free. So when we talk about freedom, we mean leaving the jail cell. When you leave the prison or the torture chamber or uh, that which restricts you, that which subjects you to suffering. The life one leads after that and the knowledge and the awareness and the vision of freedom. Well, that's what we're talking about, right? How you should live your life? Well, that's how you should live your life. Free from suffering, having freed yourself from suffering, knowing and seeing that you're free. When you know and see for yourself that you're free, that's how you should live your life. So, there you go. There's the answer to that question, which I think is useful both for our online audience and our meditators. So here I don't, I'm going to show you guys. These are our two meditators. It's cold out, 